You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon and welcome to America's Web Radio. And it's time for Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we're certainly glad to have you listening in. And uh, we'll be with our host momentarily, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Forsberg. So with that being said, good afternoon, Phil. Hey, good afternoon, David. Good to be with you. Thank you, sir. And uh, we, we do a couple of things uh, on all of our shows that uh, are about veterans and our active duty folks are first responders and that is the first part of it is just a silent prayer and we want to remember too Israel and our support of Israel and what Israel has meant to us over the years as a good ally so with that being said we're going to take a few minutes or a couple of minutes and we'll be right back with you Thank you and amen. And we do one other thing on America's Web Radio and on all of our veteran shows and active duty shows and EMT shows. And they want we want to make sure that your heart is beating well. So this goes back to the good old days of that drill sergeant. I don't know about you, Philip, but I just can't get enough of Canaan's calls, Jody's, whatever you want to call them. But uh, as I say every week, it it made that last quarter a mile possible, and uh, I just, you know, I just I love them, and uh, it took, you know, it, it takes more talent than you think to. Uh, be there running and uh, doing the cadence call as far as uh, your uh, drill sergeant or your uh, your uh, platoon uh, leader, whatever the case might be. But anyway, I hope you've had a wonderful week, Phil, and uh, I hope you had a great week. I weekend. did have a wonderful week, David. Good. Thank you. And uh, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, let's tell you about those Jodies, you know. Um, one thing, you know, it it gets you breathing, and uh, you know you, you gotta run and sing, and you're, you know, it's. I think it's good aerobic exercise, but also uh, when you know when you're doing that, 
uh, it's almost as if you're uh, pretending to enjoy the, the physical activity, which may or may not be enjoyable, and uh, it's it's just something lighthearted about it. That that uh, you know, when you're when you're working together as a team, it's very good for for building teamwork. And uh, yeah, I just uh, I, I do miss it. I don't miss running, but I, I sometimes miss that sort of camaraderie. <laughs> I tell you what, I I can't address. Um... I can only address forts. I can't address uh, Air Force bases or, or uh, Camp Lejeune or, or any anything else, what they do in uh, at, uh, the Coast Guard schools and all this. But the one thing that um, every fort that I've been on has in common is those beat-down dirt roads that they have been marched on, driven on, and it's a fine, fine dirt, sand. Well, it's not sand, it's dirt. And it's like a powder dirt almost. And the bad part about it is if you're running and, and uh, doing a Jody at the same time and you're taking deep breaths, you're breathing in about a pound and a half of dirt, I think, each time you breathe. And... Uh, <laughs> That that used to get to me, but if you're on a, if you're on a highway or on a paved road, then it's great. It's just it's fun. But going through on those, have you ever been to a fort that didn't have those roads? That by the time you've uh, gone over them with a couple of tanks and and um, APCs and all this, it just turns it into powder. Yeah, your track vehicles really compacted. Um, the ones that are most memorable to me are the ones that, uh, down in Fort Benning and, uh, and Fort Rucker. And they're mostly, um, they're fire breaks actually that are, that are cut through the pine forest, you know, to uh, contain any kind of forest fire. Um, that I hadn't so, heard. Uh, I thought yeah. it was just to make recruits miserable. <laughs> well, that's just a side benefit. Ah, ah. Well, uh, it worked. <laughs> but anyway, so we're we're here to talk about Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and uh, you know it looks like things uh, could get heated up again, and particularly in uh, Iran and Israel, and uh, we won't go into the politics of it, but uh, it's going to bear watching, I think, and. Uh, I'm sure you had something else that you wanted to discuss, and we'll discuss that. <laughs> well, you know, I've never been to Israel. Uh, I'm planning to go one day. Uh, I'd love to do it. I'd love to take a Holy Land tour and all that. Uh, and I, but I, <clears throat> uh, and I've never been to Iran. Now I've flown over Iran quite a bit. Um, doing uh, commercial flying and uh, you know I, I've known several folks from Iran um, but uh, you know my, probably the one thing that sticks in my mind the most about Iran was uh, I got on a van to go from the air, from the hotel to the uh, airport in Dubai and uh, there were two uh, women wearing Islamic headgear you know uh, on the van so I took my seat, you know, in front of them and kind of minded my own business. 
And uh, these were young women, probably in their 20s. And uh, as soon as we started going down the road, they started tapping on my back and saying, Sir, sir, where are you from? I said, well, I'm from the United States. They said, we are from Iran. I said, oh, I understand it's a very beautiful country. And they just offered without any provocation, we just want you to know we hate our government. I thought thought that was uh, pretty interesting. Hmm. Um, So, uh, you know, and I feel for the people of Iran. Um, When I was in college, my uh, professor of military science was a... uh, a colonel, Army Corps of Engineers colonel, and of course this was back in 1980, um, and he uh, he was a cartographer, and he had actually made most of the maps uh, in Iran, or he and his team had mapped uh, a great deal of Iran uh, back before the fall of the Shah, and uh, he said it was a really pleasant country, the most westernized country in the Islamic world and um, people were very free they didn't uh, they didn't much care for the brutal tactics of the Shah but the um, but they loved their country and uh, you know they, they wanted the Shah out and who's from Iran he said they, they did have their revolution, they did get the Shah out, and then the uh, Islamic extremists came in and hijacked the revolution and turned it into a uh, theocracy, which nobody really wanted. And uh, I don't know how they're going to get out of this. Um, they, uh, you know, it seems that there are countries like North Korea that uh, whenever we have weak-minded politicians in office... Uh, you know, they, they make threats and we come running over and hand them bags of cash and ask them to play nice. And, uh, you know, all you're doing with that is getting more of the same. Um, so I'm really kind of concerned about how things may go. With Iran, I think they're playing the same game that, uh, that North Korea is playing. Yeah, I remember when, uh, you know, we... <laughs> We sort of left the Shah, in my opinion, a little bit, uh, but he was, he was also dying at the time. But, yeah, yeah. uh, you know, all of a sudden we have the Ayatollah of many, and, uh, I didn't, I had never even heard of what an Ayatollah was. Yeah, well. And there I, we, uh, there we had a brutal killer under, under the guise of uh, religion. Yeah, that's always kind of a bad recipe. Uh, but you know, uh, Desert Storm. That was uh, that was an interesting uh, situation because we uh, didn't really know uh, what we were going to get out of. Uh, you know, when, when we deployed there, we had no idea, are we going to fight? Are we going to, uh, you know, is, he, is Saddam going to back down? What happens if he doesn't? And, uh, you know, we didn't have any really good answers. Um, 
he had a major who was non-deployable in our battalion, and he uh, <clears throat> he was in charge of the rear. I don't know whoever stragglers we left behind, and uh, he was the conduit of information to the spouses. And uh, at one point, he had you know told them that we were only going to be there six months, and uh, that you know when when the command started receiving information that the wives had been told we would only be there for six six months uh, it did not go over well because the, the answer was we were there until the mission was done and uh, it just so happened it was about six months but uh, oh, I don't know you know uh, maybe the suggestion that we only be there six months uh, caused some degree of uh, sense of urgency in what we did but uh, we were there just long enough to build up get in position and uh, clean house pack up our stuff and go home and uh, my hat's really off to uh, President George H.W. Bush because he had told us we were not going to be there a day longer than we had to be and he, he did everything he could to make good on that promise so I, I do appreciate that. You know, it. well, I, I guess every war has, a, for lack of better terms, a footnote to it, or it has its own style or its own uniqueness. And um, certainly Desert Storm has had its own... I guess that was, uh, you know, we we really didn't cover Vietnam with a live camera, and we didn't, you know, I guess that was the first time we've ever quote unquote embedded live uh, or real time, I should say, uh, reporters with the troops, and. Uh, you know, we, we've embedded reporters before, but they, they gave their report after the action, not during the action. And, uh, I, I, you know, and, uh, Vietnam was, I think, probably the, one of the worst wars that the media covered as far as I used to hate Walter Cronkite giving his body bag report every night. I thought, one, it was uncalled for, and two, it was, I thought it was more harmful than good. And Well, I suppose in some ways it could be demoralizing. Um, uh, you know, I mean, if you, if your entire view of uh, of success is uh, the number of their dead versus the number of our dead. Um, it's uh, you just can't go by that. Um, I had the opportunity um, a couple weeks ago to go to Vietnam, and uh, my second visit to Vietnam, the first time. I- and to uh, Da Nang and uh, this time I went to uh, uh, 
<clears throat> Saigon and Canto uh, down in the Delta. And I'll tell you the um, the people there in the Ho Chi Minh City, um, plenty of them, you know, that live there under the current regime have no problem calling it Saigon and uh, they don't uh, you know I mean on a, any kind of official documentation they'll call it Ho Chi Minh City but um, only the real stalwart communists call it Ho Chi Minh City the rest of the people just call it Saigon uh, and it, it's called Saigon because of the Saigon River that goes through there which uh, I'm told in Vietnamese means good cotton they uh, at one time grew cotton along the uh, Saigon River hmm. and um, well I'll tell you what people that if you want to go someplace where they love America you go to Vietnam they really do um, and some of the folks in the south were kind of frank about not really uh, thinking much of their government so, and, you know, wishing the Americans had prevailed. But, you know, the thing about Vietnam <clears throat> that uh, it was different from Korea was, you know, we were fighting mostly an insurgency for a good part of the time that we were there. Um, had the, uh, you, you know, the people had the, the correct uh view of the uh, South Vietnamese government that it was that it was corrupt and I think it made uh, <clears throat> some of the people buy into the, the communist uh, rhetoric um, but uh, the uh, you know we, we were fighting an insurgency the people had, I had a friend who's, uh, whose dad was a uh, two or three-star general of the uh, South Vietnamese Army. After the fall of Saigon, they discovered that uh, the general's driver was a colonel in the Viet Cong. Hmm. Um, so it was... Uh, that's a real deep state when you got a situation like that. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, in Korea, it was primarily force on force, the way we fought, uh, it, you know, in Europe. And, uh, and also, uh, well, you know, the island warfare in the Pacific was, uh, yeah, that was force on force. You got an entrenched enemy that you're working on dislodging. But <clears throat> the, uh, you know, uh, um, in Vietnam, there's no, there's no front line. And, uh, you know, when we went back, when we did Desert Storm, it was a force on force encounter. Um, we had been preparing and training for force on force against the Soviet Union in uh, Eastern Europe but thank God it never materialized so uh, when the Iraq uh, went force on force with us they got all the stuff that we had uh, perfected for uh, defeating the Soviet threat and of course they showed up with Secondhand Soviet equipment, and it really wasn't much of a contest at that point. Uh, I still remain somewhat incredulous to this day that uh, Saddam didn't just 
get out of Kuwait when he could have. Well, you know, I think that um, Saddam was extremely uh, egotistical and narcissistic and was not a field general by any means. He thought he was everything, but the fact of the matter was he didn't know what the heck he was doing. And uh, he obviously had extremely poor intelligence, if he, if any at all. And, uh, you know, I, it's that's why it was a very short war. And uh, not only from an equipment standpoint, ours being far superior to anything that the Russians had had given him. And, um, you know, he... Uh, he <laughs> He, he was the epitome of biting off more than you could chew. And uh, he didn't know what he was getting himself into. And I guess, I guess, and I wasn't there, so I can't say. But I assume he thought that there wouldn't be no coalition to kick him out. And that uh, everybody would just collapse and let him have Kuwait. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I can't understand how he could think that with, uh, you know, standing there watching the coalition materialize right in front of him. I, you um, know, yeah, I don't know where this comes from by any stretch, but, you know, it's like today and... You know, it's it's obviously a, a large part dependent on leadership, which uh, is questionable today. But as you look back, a lot of conflicts, and, and this was, and I think we we unfortunately uh, set a record in Vietnam of that. Well, they they'll talk the talk and sort of walk the walk, but. They won't finish the job. And until we started carpet bombing, we didn't even have North Vietnamese attention, or North Vietnam's attention, really. And, uh, you know, I, I think this set a, set a feeling towards the United States that they... And then, you know, it's like the thing in Afghanistan of all the stupid stuff. And we've sort of painted a different picture uh, that's not what we really are. And you well know that if you give an order, our military is going to carry it out to the best of their ability. And generally speaking, they're going to win. And that's, you know, that's the way you keep the peace is that, that, uh, you know, if we'd gone into Vietnam and really put our hearts in it and, and said, okay, we're not going to put up with any of, any more of this stuff and started the B-52s flying over, Vietnam would have, we could have saved a lot of lives and it would have been, we would have been at the negotiating table a lot sooner. And, and, in my opinion, we should have negotiated to win and not to give in. But that's only my opinion. 
Well, um, I, uh, seems valid to me. I, I never thought that uh, Kissinger did us any favors. But. Yeah. Um, well, you, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Kissinger didn't come around till uh, the Nixon administration, and that was pretty late in the game. Um, you think about uh, <clears throat> Vietnam was a... Uh, you know, our involvement there started back during the Eisenhower administration, although it was simply um, observers and advisors, not uh, not combatants. But uh, early on in the uh, Kennedy administration, there were combatants there. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I have a friend who's... Uh, works with me at the Disabled American Veterans, and uh, he flew helicopters in Vietnam. And in 1962, he had been shot down twice and uh, pretty well injured, and his commander had to order him to get on the plane and go home. So uh, I always joke with him and say, well, you know, you got shot down twice before the war ever started because the Marines told me the war started in 1965. <laughs> Uh, but you know, uh, you know, and another thing, you know, when you talk about, you know, when when did the war start? You know, I I fought a conflict in in Central America. We still don't talk about, and uh, and there were. There are people today in Syria. I don't know how many uh, how many of the general population understand. We we have people in Syria, um, and, uh, and you know, and not just special operators. You know, we we have some uh, some regular troops there. I I don't understand. You know, if there are any borders around Syria, and now with the uh, but the earthquake that happened there, that's just got to be suffering compounded on suffering over there. Well, you know, when uh, Biden raised the uh, number of, and he and the term was used again, advisors in Ukraine, and, you know, Vietnam was a big enough quagmire are we starting another quagmire in Ukraine by not only furnishing them weapons, but advisors? I, you know, I think Vietnam can should tell us that you know things can get very difficult very fast, and um, we need to be very careful about things. I, you know, I'd hate to see. Ukraine um, tumble to the to the Russians, but you know. On the other hand, you know we need to not kid ourselves. Ukraine is a one-party state. They don't have freedom of the press. They don't have, uh, you know, the democratic freedoms that you know we enjoy. 
um, or that most uh, European nations enjoy. Um, so not uh, not entirely certain what the, what the objective is there or, or why we're uh, involved at all. Um, I'm much more concerned about uh, Taiwan. You know, if we display uh, weakness, uh, the the result will be predictable. And we have. We're going to stop here and take a quick break, and uh, we'll be back with Philip Forsberg and Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm right after this. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. You know, I uh, was speaking with a uh, veteran the other day, and he uh, he congratulated me on, on this show, as a matter of fact, Phil, because... <laughs> Well, he realized that, uh, you know, people have forgotten, and it's only been 30 years, and uh, they've already already forgotten uh, what Desert Shield and Desert Storm were all about. And uh, I, I told him, well, that's exactly why we do the show, to keep, keep people informed and let them know, you know, that... I, I don't want any veteran of Desert Shield or Desert Storm to feel like they've been cheated in any way or taken advantage of or or anything. So we do what we do, and uh, I think you do a heck of a job of it, as a matter of fact. So we're going to well, keep doing thanks, it. Thanks, <laughs> David. Yeah, you know, I don't... Uh I mean, there's days that I just want to forget Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Um, I kind of enjoy being a civilian, but I, but I understand the value uh, for uh, you know for for historians for you know the how it impacts the uh, people's understanding of history uh, and. Uh, and you know what really motivates a nation to uh, to go to war with another nation? Um, it's very serious business, and uh, you know, in a way, Desert Storm's almost um, it's almost you know they say Korea was a forgotten war, but you know Desert Storm 
was kind of the forgettable war because we lost so so few folks, you know, and it lasted a, a such a short time. But we probably expanded <clears throat> more ordnance uh, in that uh, short period than, than we did in a whole year of uh, fighting in Korea. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, uh, my takeaway is it's the last time we had a, a classic force on force engagement. And, uh, we really showed that at least at that time that there was no peer competitor to the United States in, in terms of force on force. And I, I think that drove home a bigger message than we'll ever know at that time. Unfortunately, uh, you know, after the debacle in Afghanistan, uh, we, ha- we have few secrets left and few weapons left as far as that's concerned. But, uh, you know... I think Reagan probably said it best, and that's uh, and that's the old football team strategy as well. The best defense is a good, or the best offense is a good defense. And uh, we've been able to, we were able to defend our borders. And you know, there was a time that, uh, and I'm sure you remember that another country didn't want to mess with the United States. Because they knew that uh, they'd get their stuff blown away, and well, I'll tell you this: um, I was probably still unpacking my stuff from uh, coming back from Desert Storm when uh, the Soviet Union called and quit and said, "No, we're not, we're not going to do this anymore." And I, I got to think in part um, that. Uh, you know, what we had done, um, you know, gave them reason to fold the tent. Um, you know, they, they, I think they, at that point, they realized, you know, their, their stuff didn't work and, um, you know, that it was hopeless. They thought they were going to beat us in some kind of arms race. It was not going to happen. No, I'll chalk that up as a as part of a victory for uh, Desert Storm. But you know, uh, so when an empire goes away, they leave, leave power back. You know, you know something something's going to fill that back. Now we have Vladimir Putin, who at one time said, "Yep, we're not we're not communist anymore, so the state doesn't own everything." Hmm. So I got to determine who uh, who owns the where all the oil is. Well, that would be me. And overnight he became the richest man in the world just by having all that petroleum uh, that's uh, situated in Soviet lands. I know it's interesting that there are a number of uh, former Soviet republics that broke and said that they were you know, going to be uh, on their own, and uh, Russia just let them go. But when it came to uh, the Chechnyans, uh, they said, "Yeah, we're we're 
taken off too? And the answer was no. Um, that's where all the oil is, and you're, you're not leaving. Uh, you can leave, but the land stays. You know, as a pilot, I've got to ask you, uh, <laughs> as you were flying and so forth and so on, how, and I love the plane. I don't know very many people that don't. Do you know which one I'm about to ask you about? Mm. It doesn't look like it should fly, really, but it can do a lot of destruction in a very short period of time. And that's the Wardog. Okay. <laughs> How would you feel? Would, wouldn't you like to fly one of those just one time and really open it up? You know, all that flying upside down and hard turns and all, that's a young man's game. But uh, it's really kind of exhausting. Um, and, you know, my experience, uh, you know, the last, uh, last aircraft I flew were uh, 747 and uh, 777. And, uh, of course, 777 is my absolute favorite because of Basically, you're just pushing buttons and, uh, you know, uh, so easy, but the, uh, it's like sitting on your living room couch, but the, uh, the, the A-10 doesn't even have an autopilot, so I guess my answer would be, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> but it, it did have ama- amazing support power. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, they say it was, uh, the whole airplane was designed around that 30 millimeter, uh, gun. And, um, it, uh, you know, it would certainly do a job, do a number on armored vehicles. And <laughs> so, uh, they, uh, in that highway from, uh, highway of death or whatever, yeah. Coming out of Kuwait City, that, uh, that was a lot of, uh, work. I, I <clears throat> passed, uh, that one day that all that happened, I, I passed 66 targets to the, uh, Airborne Battlefield Control Center. They were, uh, uh basically a, a suite of, uh, cubicles in a C-130 flying around. And, uh, they were receiving target information to uh, various assets to uh, go destroy them. One thing that I recall, we we used a cipher table to encrypt the latitude, longitude uh, of the targets we were sending. And, uh, you know, it took some time to encrypt them, uh, you know, manually using a little cipher table. And then, of course, it took some time to decipher them on their end. And I can recall the uh, the fellow from the AV Triple C said uh, at one point just said to me, "Just send it in the clear. Don't encrypt it. Just send. Just tell me what it is. Because you know, there, if there's anybody listening, there's nothing they can do about it before we go and destroy it. <laughs> so, uh, so we did, and, and we started passing targets a lot faster um, on that particular day." They were just as hungry as could be. 
Yeah, I don't. And I think a, I think a lot of the consumers of my information were were the A10. I don't know what you could do to protect yourself from one of them. Get in a big cave with with no windows, <laughs> but you know, I just I, they're all to me. I always looked at at the A10, the Wardog, as it was almost like a cartoon character plane. You know, it just didn't look like it should be a, a military, and yet some of the photographs that I've seen. Uh, those things would fly. I, I, this sounds crazy, but it, it looked like they could almost fly without wings. That you know they had been so shot up, but they still made it. And uh, they, didn't they? Yeah, wasn't there a certain material that they used on them? Well, they uh, the the crew, the pilot sits in a uh, in like a bathtub made of titanium um so it's uh i can recall uh where i was at king fod where I, we were based they also had a10s there and there was a fellow that came back uh from the fight one time and he knew he'd been hit he knew he was damaged but he landed his aircraft attacked in and uh when he saw the extent of the damage, one of his uh, vertical stabilizers was uh, essentially shot off. Uh, and he, this guy just turned white when he saw <laughs> the amount of damage that was uh, that uh, had been done to his airplane. But he brought it in, and you know, sure they fixed it uh, and got it back in the fleet. Well, wouldn't you say, or would you say that he would have to have a control problem, even bringing it in? Yeah, I mean, he probably he probably felt, you know, that the aircraft was not responding as normal. Uh, it may have taken unusual control forces uh, to, you know, to fly it. But, uh, you know, I guess he was not willing to uh, tickle the airplane off and take the uh, the parachute ride so he uh, uh, he he brought it back I guess he felt like he had control of the aircraft and so there you go yeah Uh, you know there's so many he heard ejecting too so you know probably figured it his his uh, calculations you know is it is it so bad because I, I can control the aircraft if, uh, if I hit the silk I don't know what's going to happen you know there there's so many heroic stories like that that you know I, I can see the pilot coming out and say oh shucks twerk nothing uh, but you know to me that's a hero and uh, I you know, I have all the respect in the world, and and uh, you wonder what's going through his mind as he knows he's been shot and and uh, doesn't know the extent of the damage, and you know he could come in for his final or something like that, and and not be able to uh, let the wheels down or something. He doesn't know until he gets there and and does it, and uh, I just. 
I think our our military is just the best in the world. And the people, our military is one thing, and that's the the folks that put the uniform on. And uh, we have great equipment, but it's the person that's using the equipment that makes it even better. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's some of the some of what goes into uh, the dedication that we have uh, in our armed forces is, you know, not not using not using them for uh, you know for foolish things, you know, not kind of just sort of like uh, Vladimir Putin, you know, just kind of spending the lives of his soldiers for basically his own conquest of uh, a peaceful neighbor you know whatever the uh, the history they claim that uh, you know they're really you know the rightful owners of, of various parts of uh, Ukraine are just uh, you know you don't in my opinion it's wrong to settle that by violence Well, I again only my opinion, but you look back in history, and we've we've only come in when we thought it was the right thing to do, and that we were on the on the right side of, for lack of better words, justice. Uh, and you know, I, I guess it's like World War Two. There was no question about. Uh, Hitler and what he was trying to do and what he was doing and the you know the six million Jews that he had killed and uh, we I, I guess we've always thought we were we were on the right side of justice on the right side of the of the conflict and uh, I guess it's hard to judge sometimes but in most cases, there was no question about it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the thing to me about Vietnam, you know, we could have been a lot more righteous if uh, if the government of the South had been you know, more legitimate, less corrupt. Well, I think that was uh, our leadership, you know. Uh and again, we countries want from us, but we should demand back from them. And uh, you know, yeah, it was a very corrupt South Vietnam. And and you know, the other thing that um, I was of age for Vietnam, and uh, I. I think our government made one of the biggest mistakes from the get-go, and this was really under, more under Kennedy. Well, I guess it started with Eisenhower and then more more so under Kennedy. But all of that period of time, 1960 on, even until the day we got out or ran out of Vietnam, uh, 
our government never explained what the hell we were doing there. They kept trying to say, well, we're keeping uh, communism from spreading in the, you know, in that area and we're stopping communism and we're, you know, then they never explain, in my opinion, why don't we go in and win? What are we trading, trading trees for our soldiers? See who can hide behind the tree and shoot at somebody next. And, uh, I think, and here again, I, I think we've got the same problem today is that we have horrendous communication problems. Again, that's my opinion that, uh, our government if I'm if I'm going to ask you to die for me, the least I can do is tell you why. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it was uh, Eisenhower, uh, just an amazing individual who you know graduated from West Point, I think, in 1915, maybe or something like that, and uh, you know took the army from. Um, horses and uh, you know horse drawn artillery and all that to uh, basically into the nuclear age you know oversaw the the separation of the air force from the army the creation of the department of defense the uh, was the first chairman of the joint chiefs inherited the first cold war uh, but you know it is his uh, farewell address to the nation. Uh, you know what I mean to say, David? I should, and give me a couple of hours, and I'll think of it. Uh, well, what I wanted to say was, that, you know, in his his farewell address to the nation, he warned the nation to be ever vigilant against the military-industrial complex. And uh, I got to say. Um, by the time Lyndon Johnson came into office um, under dubious uh, situation <laughs> he uh, he ran that Vietnam War like his family business and uh, became very very wealthy huh. um, through his uh, his wife owning uh, Ladybird essentially yeah, a controlling interest in uh, Bell Helicopters, and, uh, or, uh, you know, it was the helicopter war, and, and, you know, I'm a product of the aftermath of, of that. You know, <clears throat> the Army is uh, basically, you know, all our horses are gone, uh, we move around in helicopters. And, but by the time I graduated Army Flight School, I think we were graduating a class of uh, about about 30 helicopter pilots every week. Um, and that was in 1983. And uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, we, I guess uh, Ronnie Reagan had taken over as Commander-in-Chief and uh, but we... Uh, you know, we weren't really actively fighting anybody. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, we were really building up, though. And, uh, but 
So that's, uh, I think, uh, in large part, you know, the, the tragedy of Vietnam, that it was a lot of it uh, directed by the military-industrial complex. Well, you know, I, if you look back, not only did, uh, well, Lady Bird <laughs> probably was a stronger leader than uh, Lyndon was, or she led him around by the nose or the ears or whatever, but she also amazingly, she amazingly owned a number of cargo vessels. And somehow or the other, when she would, uh, one of her vessels would uh, get into port in Vietnam, somehow they got unloaded ahead of many other vessels that had been sitting there, and they were already returning to sea before others were unloaded. And uh, You're saying they had some priority? <laughs> yeah, they had some priority, like the yardmaster. And, uh, you know, and it was, <laughs> it was a political war and family war in many ways. And, uh, you know, we look at Biden and the corruption in his family. Um, Lady Bird was no saint by any means. And Lyndon just sort of, okay, dear. Um, but, you know, he, he was, Johnson was no no war commander at all, and, uh, and as corrupt as you can get. Yeah, uh, and of course, I uh, there are a number of folks. Uh, when I was did my time at Fort Hood, Texas, I was exposed <laughs> to a lot of folks who deeply believe that. Um, Lyndon Johnson had a hand in the assassination of John Kennedy. Well, there was living there and and uh, being on a radio station uh, when he was assassinated. There were a lot of stories going around, and uh, we'll never know. We'll never know the truth. And Johnson's connection with. The mafia, the CIA, and you know, we'll just—I—I I have a hard time buying Oswald, and uh, that somebody could get off three relatively accurate shots with a a very old Italian rifle that was about as loose as a goose, you know, and uh, but. As I said, we'll never know. I don't. I, I don't know that they know. I don't know that the government knows for sure. Uh, and I don't think they can release it for another fifty years or so. But uh, I don't think they'll have anything to release. I don't. I won't be around to find out. But uh, well, it's hardly going to matter then, is it? Pardon me. I said it's hardly going to matter by then. There's very little you can do about it. Yep, not a thing. Not a thing. You might, you might learn from it, but uh, we really can't do anything. In another 50 years, you wouldn't be able to punish anybody as culpable. Yeah, all the players are dead. 
And, you know, it's... What would we learn, really, other than corruption, you know, and and you don't know how far down this went, how far up it went, and, uh, you know, I... It was a sad thing and a sad day for in our history, but uh, you can't. There's some things you just can't stop, you know. If somebody yep. sets their mind to it, uh, I don't know. So, it's, I'm paying attention I, uh, to the time this time, and uh, we're about 20 seconds away from having to tell folks that we're going to be out of here, but we'll be back next week. And All right, David. I know you spent some time at Fort Hood, so uh, you you know that I was talking about Fort Hood and their wonderful dirt roads. Yes, um, there's a place where you're not even allowed to try to dig a foxhole. Um, the dirt won't yield. No. <laughs> so, with that being said, uh, Phil, as always, thank you and. Uh, Look forward to uh, keeping everybody posted and remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. We'll talk to you soon. Take care, David. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.